Now this church, as Albert mentioned, was planted out from Covenant Life Church, I believe in 2006. And so that would make this church about 15 years old now. And uh, I remember the uh, first lead pastor, Chris Szilard, was a personal friend of mine. We had offices right next to each other. And so I've had the opportunity to come up here quite a bit over the last 15 years. And some of you were actually a part of Covenant Life Church and came up here on the church plant. And I see uh, my friend Daryl O'Connor and uh, Tawn, I think I saw her here as well. And maybe there are others of you that were at Covenant Life Church and participated in that church plant many years ago. Um, Covenant Life Church began in 1977. And uh, the reason I'm mentioning this is because every church has an origin. Every local church has an origin. We're going to look today at the origin of the apostolic church that took place around 30 AD or so back in the city of Jerusalem. Acts chapter 2, you may be familiar, is the story of the birthday of the apostolic church. And on that day, many years ago, 120 believers in Jesus Christ, his original disciples, were seated together in an upper room. Now just 10 days before that, the Lord himself, the resurrected Lord Jesus, had accompanied his disciples on a short walk outside the city of Jerusalem, and there before their eyes, he ascended into a cloud and was taken up into heaven, that's called the ascension, the exaltation of Jesus Christ, who then was seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And he told his disciples to not leave the city of Jerusalem, but to wait there, because not many days from now, they would experience a baptism in the Holy Spirit where they would receive power and become his witnesses empowered by the Holy Spirit himself. And so 10 days after the ascension of Christ, they were seated together in an upper room, 120, and there all of a sudden came, like the sound of a rushing mighty wind, into the room where they were seated, and cloven tongues as of fire rested upon the heads of each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And as they were filled with the Spirit, it seemed like they were intoxicated. They began to declare the glorious and wondrous works of God in languages they did not know. And as the Holy Spirit was poured into them, they poured out of that room into the streets of Jerusalem, which was filled that day because it was the Feast of Pentecost, where Jewish believers from all parts of the empire had come and gathered for that feast. And they were amazed and perplexed, to hear these uneducated Galilean Christians proclaim the wonderful works of God in languages that they didn't know. But the people hearing them did know, and they were amazed at all this. And so the Apostle Peter, who not many weeks before this was a fearful man cowering in front of a slave girl, denying that he even knew the Lord, now filled with the Holy Spirit, took the opportunity to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ 
And that's much of what we have in Acts chapter 2. If you're here a couple weeks ago, I preached from that passage. Now, toward the end of Peter's sermon, he became very, very bold. And he, through the power of the Holy Spirit, began to apply what he was preaching to the hearts of the people that were gathered there that day. And so I'd like to take this up in Acts chapter 2 and verse 36. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version, Acts chapter 2 and verse 36. He gets to the height of his sermon and he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Verse 42. And they, those 3,120 believers, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let me pray. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come. Please gain our attention. Lord, even those of us today who are here and perhaps tempted to be distracted by other things, gather us around your word and Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts and open the eyes of our hearts that we may perceive the truth in this passage of scripture and be changed. Grant us grace, Lord, because in and of ourselves, we are dull and we don't understand. We need your Holy Spirit to help us interpret your word. Please give me grace as I share now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this, as I said, my friends, is the birthday of the Apostolic Church. This is a big day in redemptive history. This is a big, big deal. Now that's the birthday of the apostolic church, but every local church, as I said, has an origin as well. And I mentioned Covenant Life Church. Back in 1977, there were a number of people, young people at the time, who gathered together and were the beginning of that church. And that church, when it began in 1977, was patterned on this passage, Acts 2, 42 through 47. As a matter of fact, back in those days, we didn't even call it a church because the word church was associated with dead tradition. 
And we wanted to do something new by doing something old. We didn't call it a church. We called it a fellowship. We called it a community. And the fellowship of believers or the community of believers, oh, those were names that were used by other groups. So we chose a really hip church name. We called ourselves Gathering of Believers. Yeah, well, that didn't last very long. A few years later, it was changed to Covenant Life Church. Origins. You know, whether it's a nation or a family or some other institution, origin stories give us a sense of identity. They give us a sense of stability. We talk about the origin of our nation. And when we do that, and July 4th is coming around very soon, it, it brings us back to the founding principles. And it gives us that sense of identity or stability. It's really important. Acts 2, as I said, is the story of the origin of the apostolic church. And verses 42 through 47 in particular is the passage that was associated with the origin of the church that I'm a pastor of and have been there for some time now, Covenant Life Church. I actually wasn't one of the original members, uh, but my association with the founders of Covenant Life Church went back even before its beginning to the early 70s. Uh, that was the time of what was called the Jesus Movement. Started out in California, it was a real revival. And in 1972, I became a, a Christian. I was converted out of a counterculture background, believe it or not, one point I had long hair. Yeah. Um, and I was into all sorts of uh, bad things, both culturally and politically. And, uh, and God saved me out of that, that life. And I had a dramatic conversion. Uh, it was so dramatic, I lost all my friends. Um, but they were the kind of friends that actually at the time I, I, I should have lost because we were dealing drugs and things like that. So... My beginnings were a, a dramatic change, and as I said, the, the beginning of Covenant Life Church, even that word church was avoided. Um, but, you know, as we're going back here to the book of Acts, there was an adventure and an excitement in these opening chapters of the book of Acts, what we just read, and, and we felt that way. Back in the 70s, we felt that way. We're going to do something. We're going we're gonna to bring a... a, a a sense of New Testament Christianity back to the church because the old dead traditions weren't working. We were radicals, you see. We were pioneers. We were not settlers. Remember that? And so that church began with a lot of youthful zeal, a lot of idealism, but also a lot of ignorance, <laughs> uh, even some arrogance. At least that was certainly the case with me. I remember trying to explain all this to my puzzled parents I sat them down and I told them you see mom and dad the church had lost the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit for 2,000 years but we found it again and we're restoring New Testament Christianity authentic Christianity well this was met with blank stares and my poor father wondered what has my idiot son got into now it's a new kick He's into a religion kick now. Well, actually, in reality, we weren't all that far off. And in spite of our many shortcomings, we were sincere. And God was very merciful to us. This passage, 242 through 47, 
is a summary statement of what characterized that apostolic church. And it still does remain a true pattern of life in the early church, a pattern that's filled with wisdom for us even today. You're going to have some new members added soon, and the church, this church, this humble church, will do well to take note of this pattern of New Testament Christianity. Just like my church and just like every church, it's good to go back and revisit the basics. So we have a sense of our origin, of our connection with the apostolic church, and we're able to build wisely. It was, by the way, an ideal beginning in Acts chapter 2. And in it we can see the marks of vital apostolic Christianity. It has much to teach us. And we do well to listen. The counsel of the Holy Spirit comes through the scriptures. We've believed this from the start. We still believe it. And God has been merciful. God has been merciful to Living Hope Church as well. All right. Now I reminded you a little bit of the context on this particular day, this day of Pentecost, the church went from 120 to 3,120. Now that's church growth. <laughs> wow, that's church growth. A small church became a mega church. Imagine if this church added 3,000 members in one day. Well, that would be astounding. It'd be exciting. I mean, you'd be thrilled. It'd also bring with a lot of problems and issues and <laughs> things to solve, but I think the sense of exhilaration that, wow, the Holy Spirit has, has done something tremendous. Well, it tells us here that the Holy Spirit was present and was active and that the believers were devoted. They were devoted to four things in particular and this passage gives us a very happy little outline that's easy to follow. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Oh, okay. Well, we're going to talk about those four things today. We won't be spending equal time on all of them. We'll be spending most time on the first two. First of all, the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Now, devoted. If you're devoted to something or devoted to someone, it means you'll spend your time, your energy, in service of that person or that thing. If you're a devoted father, you're going to spend your time and your energy caring for your children. If you're a devoted wife, you're going to see to the needs of your husband because you love and care for him. If you're a devoted um, golfer, you're going to devote yourself. I'm a, I'm a golfer, okay, so that's... <laughs> I can very easily become devoted to golf. It can absorb you. Sports can do that. There are other things you can become devoted to. You could become devoted to a music group and become a groupie, right? I mean, all sorts of things. But we're talking here about what really should characterize Christians. And number one, it should be devoted to the apostles' teaching. In other words, they really wanted to learn their faith. Because, you see, this teaching, this faith, what's called the apostles' teaching or the apostles' doctrine, is what connected them to the Lord of that doctrine. Let's never forget, folks, that Jesus Christ, the person, 
is the center of our Christian faith. And it's relating to him that is the most important thing. The fact that we love the apostles' doctrine is because the apostles' doctrine teaches about who Jesus is. I was talking with, uh, I think it was Nick uh, a little bit earlier. He's a baseball fan. We were talking about some of the uh, Orioles baseball players. Back in the, uh, back in the 80s uh, and, and even in the 90s, uh, Baltimore Orioles had a pitcher named Scotty McGregor. And I, I loved Scotty McGregor. He's a Christian. Uh, he's a left-handed pitcher. He was a very effective pitcher. I think he threw the last game of the World Series in 83 when the Orioles won. And uh, I knew a pastor in Pennsylvania, Mike Brecht, and he told me a story. He was a personal friend of Scotty McGregor's. And Scotty was on the mound one day, and he was at a particular point in the game where it was a key pitch, and he was taking his time. And I'm going to use some bad language in a moment here. I want to ask you to forgive me in advance. But as he was on the mound and he was taking what one fan thought was too much time, she shouted out, Jesus Christ pitched the ball. And Scott was alarmed by hearing the Lord's name used in vain like that. But he gathered himself. He made the pitch. He got out of the inning. And then as he walked back to the dugout, because the person he shouted it out was right behind the dugout and he saw her, he did something that ball players are not supposed to do. They are not supposed to directly interact with fans. But he looked at her and he said, if you really knew him, you would never say that. You would never say that. Jesus Christ is our Lord and our Savior. His name is not to be taken in vain like that. Because he is the one who died for our sins. He is the Messiah, a powerful figure who allowed himself to be crucified. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And you know what? The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I'll tell you something else that occurs to me. I hope you're familiar with Handel's Messiah. It's some of the most beautiful music you'll ever hear. Without a doubt, my favorite part of Handel's Messiah is from that verse. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. Check it out on YouTube when you go home. What you'll see is the first part of it is almost daily sheep bounding around doing what they want to do. All we, like sheep, all we, like sheep, have gone astray. You get the idea of sheep are jumping around doing their own thing. And, and it goes on like that over and over again. And it's just lighthearted and, and fancy free. But then all of a sudden at the end of that part, the mood changes. And it gets real sober and real somber. And it gets quiet. And the choir sings, And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You know, if you listen to that, you get the picture. All of us are doing our own thing, going our own way without a thought for the God who created us or the Lord who died for us. But when you stop and think that the Lord 
hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. It will stop. It'll bring tears to your eyes if you meditate on it. It's poignant. My point is this. The apostles' teaching is so important because it helps us get to know the Messiah, the Lord, the one who saves us. These Christians were devoted to the apostles' teaching, which was really the Lord's teaching. It's because the apostles were the Lord's disciples, and they learned this teaching, they learned this doctrine from him. They had been with him since the beginning, since John's baptism. They were with him all the way to the cross. They were with him to the resurrection and to the ascension. And yeah, they were diverted they there were that you know strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered they were scattered so they 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 didn't do real well through that time they lost heart but he gathered them together again they learned from him there were some hiccups along the way but now we get the picture that they're going to be sharing their doctrine with these new disciples. You know, when you read the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the picture you get about the apostles isn't all that flattering. They often misunderstand. They were selfish. They were weak in faith. Hey, who's going to sit at the right hand and the left hand of the Lord? I want, to, I want that place. Yeah, they, they often misunderstood him, but they were always authentically Jesus guys. They were his guys, okay? And, and that should give... Encouragement to us because we mess up, we foul up a lot. But, but if you're his, you're his guy. You belong to Jesus. And when you fall, he'll pick you up. Well, they were devoted to him because he was devoted to them. And after the resurrection, you have those 40 days when he further equipped them with the, the, the truth about him from the Old Testament scriptures. For those 40 days, Jesus would appear and disappear. And he'd teach them. He'd give them Bible studies. He, he told them that the law and the prophets and the writings, they were all about him, the Old Testament writings. And now with the help of the Holy Spirit, now they get it. And Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2 is a good example of that. It's basically Old Testament scripture properly interpreted and applied and now the power of the Holy Spirit going through Peter's preaching and teaching of the Old Testament doctrine of Christ. The Holy Spirit takes it and he pierces the hearts of those that were listening. And they knew they had to do something. These men and brethren, what shall we do? He said, repent, be baptized. And instead of being condemned, you're going to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you. The question for you and me, are we devoted to the apostles' teaching? Remember, it's a teaching about Jesus. It's the teaching that Jesus lived and died and was buried and rose and ascended. Why? So that your sins might be forgiven, so that you might receive the gift of eternal life. Do you spend any time, any energy learning your faith? I am often surprised how little effort Christians put into learning their faith. You may have a hard time even listening to me right now. Are you learning your faith? Are you distracted? Do you spend any time in the Word of God? If you don't, if you don't work at learning it, if you have no grasp of it, you may easily lose your 
grasp of it and fall away. Do you read your Bible? Let me exhort you. Read your Bible. Read it today. Read it every day. Certainly read those passages that you are familiar with and that give you comfort. Certainly. But in addition to that, read all the other parts of it that you might not be inclined to read. As a matter of fact, my advice, read those passages that you like to read and whatever you're drawn to. But in addition to that, open the book at the beginning and read it all the way through. And when you come to the end of it, go back to the beginning and read it again. Do that over, I've done that countless times. As a matter of fact, I was looking in this Bible today. My other one's falling apart, so I got this other one out. And I started this in Genesis, uh, July 12th, 2018. I'm now in Revelation chapter 7. So I'm going to finish it up around July 12th, 2021. That's three years. Some people, oh, you've got to read through the Bible in a year. Why? Now, now, if you do that and if you've done that and it works, that's great. I'm not quite like that. What I find is people say, oh, I've got to read three chapters a day and four chapters on the weekend, and then I'll get through the Bible in a year. Well, that's wonderful. But what often happens is they get sick or they go on vacation. They miss, oh, I've got to read all these chapters to catch up. It's such a drag. And then they get up, caught up, and they fall back again, and it's like this, this chore. It's not a chore. It's a privilege. There's no, no law that says you have to read through the Bible in a year or in two years even. I, I don't care how long it takes you. Read through the Bible. And when you get through it, go back. and You've got to be saturated in Scripture. And you know what will happen? After you read the Bible through, you'll find that, you know, this doesn't seem to line up with that. That seems to disagree with this. We start spotting these things we think are contradictions. They're not because the Holy Spirit inspired it all. He doesn't contradict himself. But they're paradoxes. They don't seem to, how do we? And when you start trying to figure it out how it all fits together, my friends, that's called theology. That's called doing theology. When you try to make heads and tails of the book of James and the book of Galatians, which seem to say different things. And when those things start to happen, you get this cognitive dissonance that, I'm trying to understand this, but I don't really understand. What should I do? First, pray. And then, go talk to somebody that knows more than you do. Talk to your pastor. He'll help you. In other words, you need teachers as well as just doing your own study. And there are many good teachers out there. There's also some bad ones. I'm going to talk about that in a moment. But look, if you're a Christian, you have a responsibility to learn apostolic teaching. You should be devoted to it. They were devoted to it. You should be devoted to it. I should be devoted to it. Because the apostles' doctrine is what eventually becomes something we call the New Testament. Christians should be familiar with the New Testament and the Old Testament because it tells us the objective truth about Jesus Christ. It's what you believe if you're a Christian. It includes all the things that Jesus commanded. Jesus commanded a lot of things. And we need to follow his commands. They'll keep us out of trouble. He told us to go and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and to obey all that I have commanded you. So there are commands that are in the New Testament. 
Uh, look, another way to get at this is where do you go for instruction in your life on how to live? What to believe? What to do? Here's some alternatives. You can go to yourself. In other words, you can consult your own subjective feelings. How do I feel about what's true and right? How do I feel about this cultural thing going on? How do I feel about gay marriage? How do I feel about sex outside of marriage? How do I feel about raising children? How do I feel about whatever? And I subject how I feel about it. And if I feel this is okay, then it's okay without regard to the Word of God. That's called subjectivism. Yourself as the highest authority. But imagine if you are lost in the woods, and I mean really lost, and you don't know the way out. Oh, hey, but great, I've got a compass. But then imagine if instead of pointing due north, that compass only points to yourself. You know what? You're in trouble. That's the danger of subjectivism. When we think that how we feel about something is the final authority, we're going to be in big trouble. No, it's not much help. Now, apostolic teaching always points to true north. It points to God, to Christ, and to truth. Closely related to that is relying on my past experience. You start to get a little bit older, you've had some experiences, you know, there are two ways to learn according to the book of Proverbs. You can learn through counsel or you can learn through consequences. Book of Proverbs gives wise counsel. It says to the young man, don't go this way, don't do that. It counsels against easy money, easy sex. It counsels us. If you don't listen to the counsel of those that are older and wiser, then you learn by way of consequence. In other words, you fall into the pit, you break your leg, and you think, oh, okay, I guess I better not do it that way next time. That's one way to learn. And all of us have had some experience with consequences that's taught us what we shouldn't do. But isn't it much better to heed counsel? Well, wise counsel comes to us through Scripture. So past experience can be helpful but past experience can be a problem too because when we remember the past well you evaluate the past how can I put it it's uh, the when I think of the past I f usually filter out the bad stuff and just remember the good stuff so I can look back to a golden age when things were done a certain way and think that's the way they should always be done Imagine if they did that in the book of Acts here. In Acts chapter 4, they had a prayer meeting where the room was shaken. The Holy Spirit was there. It was powerful. But imagine someone saying, well, yeah, the room was shaken. But where was the rushing mighty wind? Where were the tongues of fire? This is nothing compared to that. We need to go back to past experience. And so people can use as their tool of evaluation whether or not something measures up with the past. This is the problem of idealism. We construct an ideal past and then 
if it's not living up to it, we're never satisfied. This can happen in churches. Hey, back then, we had this, that, and the other thing. Back then, this was really good. Now, not so great. And they look at Acts chapter 2, and they think, that's the way it has to be. But you know, Acts chapter 2, while it's ideal, it doesn't stay that way. It goes on. You know, in a few chapters, we're going to come across Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, I'll mention that in a moment. But right now, I'm talking about alternatives to apostolic doctrine, your own subjectivism or your past experience. And then there are other voices, maybe friends that you respect. But even more than that, I'd like to just mention uh, today you can go online. You can hear preachers and teachers that will tickle your ears and say everything that you like to hear. And uh, what you hear online could be good, maybe not so good. It depends. One major difference, however, between your pastor and some online presence is that in most cases, you do not know the life behind that online teacher, whether it backs up the teaching or not. Now, Jesus said this about false prophets. He said, you will know them by their teaching, right? No. He said, you will know them by their fruit. There are a lot of people online that sound great, but the fruit of their lives has been disaster. That's not the case when you're talking about a local church. Some people think they can get away with not being in a church. Just listen, preaching online. They can worship online. They don't have to deal with people. People are messy. When you commit yourself to a local church, you, well, we'll talk about fellowship in a moment, but a lot of what passes for teaching and preaching online, it's not that good. That's why if you have a question about it, talk to your pastor, Albert. His, he is sound in doctrine. You can observe his life and he can tell you whether this is helpful or not. Besides, there's a lot of stuff that's out there that passes for Christian teaching that, folks, is just no more than Christian self-help, wisdom tips, coach stuff, personal coaching. And it's not that there's not a place for that, but we're talking here about apostolic doctrine. You heard Cameron talk a little bit up here about what he read from Romans chapter 5 and how that had application in his life. That's the kind of thing that you want to hear. Not here's a wisdom tip that can help you when you're feeling blue. Well, maybe it's helpful, maybe it's not. But if it's not rooted in apostolic doctrine, it's not going to pass the test of time. All right, I took a lot of time on that because it's so important. Bottom line, read your Bible. Read it when you feel like it. Read it when you don't feel like it. I'm not making a law out of this. I'm just saying your life should be characterized. Jesus said, look, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. How many of you missed a meal last week? Probably not. You know, how much more so your soul? Eat the word of God, the bread of life. Okay, second mark of the church, devotion to apostles' doctrine. Secondly, to fellowship. Now, that's a term we've all heard. But basically what it means is we need one another. And that word together or fellowship summarizes our life both spiritually, practically, socially. If God is my father, then everyone else who is his child, I'm related to. My brother, my sister. We share this new life. We're partners with one another in this grace of life. Now in verses 44 and 46, the word together is used. 
Their lives were not lived in isolation. They were together in the temple. They were breaking bread together and from house to house. And then there's an interesting aspect of their fellowship that's described in verses 44 and 45. It says, all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. It's a shared life that we're called to, to live. And that sharing extends to our material possessions. This has been called the community of goods. And it's appropriate to take a moment to address it because in the history of the church, well-meaning Christians have taken this example and applied it in some ways that aren't helpful. You can get the impression here that if I'm a believer and I have a certain amount of wealth that I should share what I have with you. And if you want it, should be yours for the taking. So if I have a watch and you look at it and say, that's a nice watch, I'd like to have it. Didn't Jesus say, give to those who ask of you? And I say, oh, okay, I guess I have to. And, and, and that sort of thing, you know, has, has happened. At various times and in certain circumstances, Christians have practiced the community of goods. That is the sharing of all things in common. And they've been blessed in doing that. In Acts 2, 44 and 45, is an example of this. You get the impression here it was rather spontaneous, don't you? But there have been attempts to turn this into an unvarying principle with unfortunate results. Listen, as Christians, we all share in God, and God is generous. If we share in God, we are also going to be generous. Generosity and giving are appropriate for Christians because we share in God and that's who God is. He is generous in giving. Verse 46 here refers to believers as having glad and generous hearts. I like to share. I like to give. I didn't always, but... It really is true, as Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, it is blessed to receive. But Jesus said it's even more blessed to give. I like to give. I like to share. But I like to give as the Holy Spirit directs me. When, to whom, how much... I like to give as the Lord leads me, as the Holy Spirit leads me. What I don't like is someone else telling me what to give, how much to give, and to whom to give it. When and where and to whom. When someone tells, you know, we call that, that's called taxation. Okay? Now, there are political realities that require taxes. You like to drive on the roads, cost money to build them. You pay a gasoline tax, right? We, we have a national defense. You got to have it. We pay taxes. There are political realities that require taxes. We don't necessarily like it, but we do it. And as a matter of fact, even in the Bible, it says pay taxes to whom taxes are due. So it's appropriate for the common services we enjoy. And a certain amount of it we put up with. But when it becomes exorbitant, when it becomes really too much, it's onerous and, and at 
times people will rise up and they will want to throw off oppression. There's a political philosopher named George Harrison and he said it like this. Let me tell you how it will be. There's one for you, 19 for me. Because I'm the tax man. Should 5% appear too small, be thankful I don't take it all. Because I'm the tax man. If you drive a car, I'll tax the street. If you try to sit, I'll tax your seat. If you get too cold, I'll tax the heat. If you take a walk, I'll tax your feet. Because I'm the tax man, baby. I'm the tax man. And you're working for no one but me. Apparently, the royalties that the Beatles were paying in England were onerous, and so I think that inspired the song. But in Britain, there is this milder form of socialism, but there are certain political ideologies like communism and extreme forms of socialism that are a positive evil. People are not breaking down the fences these days to get into Cuba or Venezuela. And you can dress it up with fine-sounding phrases like from each according to his ability, to each according to his need. But as the economist Thomas Sowell put it, these ideologies, a beautiful idea and a horrible reality. And if you don't believe me, just study the Soviet Union of the 20th century. Say, okay, Robin, yeah, but that's political stuff. What about in a Christian setting? Isn't that what we have here? Yeah, it is. With glad and generous hearts, they were distributing to any as they had need. So if you're not giving at all anywhere, you should ask yourself whether you're in the faith. You say, but it's mine. Well, no, it's not. It's God's. You and I are stewards. We don't have anything that hasn't been given to us, and that includes our very bodies. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have of God, not of yourself? Therefore, even what you do with your body, you're accountable to God. You and I are managers. We're stewards. Everything we have belongs to Him. And during the time of the Protestant Reformation, there was a radical wing. They're called the Anabaptists. And because they were so persecuted, they at times did practice the community of goods just to survive. And God blessed many of them. But there were also examples among the Anabaptists where the community of goods became compulsory. In other words, it was made mandatory. And that ended in failure. Even here in the beginning chapters of the book of Acts started out a beautiful, ideal reality but then Ananias and Sapphira show up in Acts chapter 5. Do you remember them? They sold a piece of property. They brought it to the apostles as if they were donating the entire proceeds. But they were not. They had agreed beforehand to hold back some portion. And we're not told why. What we do know is that they were deceitful. They lied to the church. They lied to the apostles. They lied to the Holy Spirit. They lied to God. And they died as a result. Now that's the apostolic church. It didn't stay ideal very long. As a matter of fact, the history of the church, you'll find that there are ups and there are downs. There are setbacks. There are movements forward. It's not all ideal, folks. 
And in every local church, there are ups and downs. There are times of revival and then declension. Can you say amen? amen. Yeah, all right. Look, Peter said to them, Ananias and Sapphira, he said, while it remained unsold, was it not yours? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? In other words, there was nothing compulsory about that. Sharing what we have from the right motive, from a glad and generous heart, led by the Holy Spirit, is good and godly. You don't want to miss out on the joy of giving. But if the community of goods is made compulsory, if it's required even subtly, then a good thing goes bad. And you know, you can extend this to other areas of church life. If you have these, you know, every church is different. They have their ways of doing things. Even have their ways of dressing, you know. I think I'm the only guy at Covenant Life Church who wears a coat and tie. Okay? We don't make it compulsory. But I'm glad nobody forces me to wear a t-shirt to church. Because it says old men should be dignified. And I want to take that seriously. I'm an old man. I want to be dignified. That's just the way I am. We can have freedom in all of these different things. But if we start to feel a subtle push to, eh, if you're not quite this way, then you don't really belong. That's the kind of thing we want to avoid whether it's the community of goods or the way we dress or the way we hack cut our hair or the way, you know, there should be freedom in the spirit to follow the Lord. That's fellowship, our shared life in Christ. We're different people. We're going to do things differently. We're going to see things a little bit differently. But what we got in common, what we've got to have in common is Jesus Christ as the center and the apostles' doctrine. And as we move toward that, we're going to find ourselves more and more unified in the Spirit. When informed and bounded by the wisdom of apostolic teaching, fellowship is always a good thing. But number one comes that teaching that brings us to the Lord and then we find one another who also love the Lord, we will, in fellowship, strengthen one another, encourage one another, we'll correct one another, but we will never reject one another. All right, they were devoted to the apostles' doctrine, they were devoted to fellowship, and now just briefly, the last two. They were devoted to the breaking of bread. And the, the definite article, the breaking of bread, is used here in this passage. So most likely it has reference to the Lord's Supper. This is something that Jesus expected his church to do. Why? In remembrance of him. The Lord's Supper, or the breaking of bread, is a visible sign pointing to Christ and his atoning work. We remember his body that was broken. We remember his blood that was shed because this is what effected our salvation. And so here, the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, that is the shared life of the Lord and his people, come together in the tangible elements of the bread and the cup. They are tangible. You know, I can say, you are my friend, and the words have meaning, but when I reach out my hand and shake yours, that spoken friendship is made tangible, and now we feel something of one another's acceptance. When we participate in the Lord's Supper as baptized believers, we give expression to our faith in an ongoing way. Excuse me for a moment.
the sacraments which are instituted by the Lord for our edification and strengthening are precious symbols of our life and relationship with the Lord and with one another. The sacraments are called both signs and seals. They're signs in the sense that they point beyond themselves to what's unseen, our Lord Jesus. And they are seals in the sense that they authenticate our lives as genuine Christians. A seal in the sense of the sealing of a document. A king would prepare a document, he'd roll it up, put a little wax on it there, and use his royal ring to impress on that wax that it really came from him. That sealing of our lives when we participate in the sacraments gives authentication to our faith as Christians. The early church was marked by regularly observing the Lord's Supper. And here it was probably part of a larger feast, an agape feast, but it's an element, it's a mark of the church. And finally, the prayers. Again, the definite article is used. Prayer. Prayer was a vital part of the early church. Now this is referring to corporate prayer here. When the church is gathered formally, could be a reference to their time together in a temple or informally house to house but in either formal or informal contexts prayer is always appropriate our communion with one another therefore has an implication it's not just you and me it's you and me and God okay it's us here today but it's also God that means it's always appropriate at any point to break off what you're doing and say, hey, let's pray. Isn't that right? I mean, I start a sermon, read a little bit of scripture, and say, okay, let's pray. You know, we're up here worshiping, and, and maybe the pastor leads in a prayer, a pastoral prayer. There's never a time, in other words, when prayer is inappropriate. There's nothing that you should be doing in your life where you can't immediately just stop address the Lord if you're doing something and you can't stop and address the Lord then you shouldn't be doing whatever it is you're doing you're not doing it with a good conscience I'm sure okay prayer is important it marks the church there should be dedicated times for prayer like pastoral prayers like when we have a day of prayer or a week of prayer but prayer is one of the marks of the apostolic church along with the apostles doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and when we participate in these simple activities a wonderful thing happens the last verse verse 47 says that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved now there's no indication here that there was some kind of an organized evangelistic, evangelistic outreach. Uh, perhaps there was. The, the implication is that the, the church, just by living their lives in fellowship with one another in the Lord, were actually witnessing to the reality of the risen Lord. The Holy Spirit enabled them. The Holy Spirit empowered them. And the Holy Spirit added to their number. The Lord added to their number we should just always be in a position where we're ready to give an account for the hope that we have within us it's just a simple thing to be a witness just witness to the reality of well this is what Jesus means to me in my life 
maybe like me, you were converted out of a culture and a background that was very ungodly and you just give expression to that. Maybe you were raised in a Christian home and you give expression to that. It's, it's fine. Just being a witness is just testifying to the truth that you know. It doesn't have to be bombastic. You don't have to have a strong personality. You just need to be sincere and be ready and, and give that answer with gentleness and respect, as Peter says. We have a living hope. That's in my notes here. I wasn't thinking about that because I wasn't actually intended to give the sermon at Living Hope Church. But we have a living hope. You have that in your very name. We have a living hope because we have the teaching of the apostles, the apostles' doctrine. We have fellowship with God and one another. And although the Lord is not with us in the flesh, we have these wonderful emblems of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so, because of these things and the fact that we're connected with him through the gift of prayer means that we're a rich people. And being generous, we're happy to share that riches, those riches with others. So, um, my friends, we're in a, a really good place right now. Uh, wherever you may be in your personal walk with the Lord, it could be a time of victory, it could be a time of suffering. Um, the fact is, our Lord has walked before us in all of these things, and we have a suffering Messiah who actually is now exalted and seated at the right hand of the throne of God, which is, by the way, uh, your destination and mine. We're really seated with him right now in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And one day, our life on this earth will come to an end, and we will ever be with the Lord. Right now, we have, as I mentioned, these wonderful blessings of the Apostles' Doctrine, Fellowship, the Breaking of Bread, and Prayers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the riches that we have in Christ Jesus. I thank you for the men and the women, the boys and the girls that are a part of this church. Lord, this is a humble church. There should be no other kind of church. And Lord, you give grace the humble, give grace to the people of Living Hope Church. Lord, please bless and guide them by the Holy Spirit as they practice fellowship and as each of them grows individually and as a group in their knowledge of you through these wonderful marks. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.